You're listening to the Broken Meeple Podcast, hosted by Luke Hector, a proud member of the Dice Tower Network. This show is about board and card games, and dedicated to you, the people who play them. Whether you're a hardcore gamer or a newcomer to the hobby, I hope this show is both informative and entertaining. I invite you to sit back and enjoy. It's 2016, it's a new year, and this episode is dedicated to new gamers who may be joining the hobby. After my first impressions of Letters from Whitechapel and Trains and Stations, I will look back on a One More Game segment for one of the classics of all time, Settlers of Catan. And then, to help you new gamers out there, my top 10 list for this episode is the top 10 gateway games. Check out this list if you're looking to start your collection. Hello, Happy New Year 2016 is here, which means a brand new year for games to come out. 2015 was a good year, but not one of the favourites. But let's see if 2016 can do any better. So, what's been happening with me? Well, of course, the review copies are coming in a bit faster than I was expecting, but I'm chugging them out as fast as I can. If you look back on my blog since December, you will see my spoiler-free review of Time Stories, and this is possibly the one time so far where I have tackled the hype train and actually been satisfied. So, see how that goes. Then, my first ever, this is a month for first ever reviews, shall we say. First up, we've got my first digital app review. I've never done a review of an app, but I was asked to do the Ticket to Ride digital app on Steam as a review, and I've done that as well, so you can see that on the blog to see how the computer version of Ticket to Ride works compared to the board game. After that, we also have a new segment that I'm doing on LCG reviews. Now, review is a bit of a quote-unquote phrase here. The idea is is that I am going to be reviewing the releases, the expansion releases, for a Game of Thrones 2nd Edition and Android Netrunner. And I will be going through the cards and giving my brief opinion as to how they might work and maybe some combos that will go well with them. Now, I am not a Tier 1 player, as they say, in any of these two games, far from it. But I do attend occasional local tournaments and I can at least see what the current meta is like. So take the advice with a pinch of salt, but it's me giving my opinion from a casual player rather than the stereotypical I went to nationals in the top 8 and know everything about Tier 1 decks type player. And then since then, we have had Warhammer Quest, the adventure card game reviewed, and this I can only best describe as a hybrid between Lord of the Rings LCG and the Pathfinder adventure card game. How does this one fare up against those two? Check out the review and see my thoughts on that. It's getting pretty popular on Board Game Geek as of this moment. In terms of what else might be out though, by the time this episode goes live, you may be seeing the spoiler-free review of the Marcy case, which is the first expansion to the Time Stories game. Whether I'll have that out by now is dependent. It depends when I get this episode out. But you may also see Grand Austria Hotel. That is a new Euro by Lookout Games and Mayfair about running a hotel in Austria. So expect Strudel to function, sorry, Strudel to feature as often as possible. Hmm, Strudel. Strudel's really nice. You really should try it. So that might be out. On top of that, though, there's, of course, other reviews on the horizon. I expect to get my full, proper, feature-length review of Imperial Assault done as soon as I can. I have now played the skirmish game enough times, and I have now completed a full-length campaign as the Empire and seen how it works with a group of four players. 
Let's let's just say the 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 opinions are gonna be mixed. Let's just say that right now, okay? This is not going to be the best thing since sliced bread, but I don't think it's all bad. So I think you're gonna get extreme points of view on both sides. But check out that review when it comes out. In terms of everything else, the Portsmouth on board clubs are still going well, and so is the Petersfield one. I'm trying to host more events at my place, but it's proving a little tricky at the moment with the flat and all time. However, I am still in my process of looking for a new house to live, and granted, the market has kind of dried up a bit, but there's one in Portsmouth that has caught my eye, and I'm going to view it hopefully soon, depending when they get back to me, and we'll see how that goes. I would like to be able to move into a house because I already own my flat, but storage is becoming an issue, I only have a smallish table for games, and I really want to have a dedicated games room. So the idea is that by moving into a free bed house, I might be able to facilitate that need. You know, have a dining table where some people could play games, but mainly have a dedicated game room. So maybe have the PC near there, but certainly have a big table, whether I'll go for the full you know, geekers on table remains to be seen in terms of budget, but I will certainly give it a think. And of course, to have my game collection in that room. So to basically plug it away, away from the lounge where everybody walks into it first. So fingers crossed, I really do want to move house at some point this year. This is one of my goals, one of my New Year's resolutions to get into a house this year. And if all goes well, if I can find the right house, then hopefully I should be able to manage that. In terms of the dating world, Still single, still looking, still dragging my friends to speed dating events, but that's the way. Unfortunately, Portsmouth seems to have dried up with females that are into board gaming, and I'm not saying that's the only type of person I'm going for, but let's just say that would certainly be a positive if that was the case. But hey-ho, only time will tell, I guess. In terms of conventions that I'll be going to soon, well, obviously the major ones that tend to happen around this area being UK Games Expo and the Essen. Essen is not until all the way at the end of the year, and I will be going to both. So I'll be at UK Games Expo, and I will be at Essen. But there is another convention, I believe it's called SORCON, S-O-R-C-O-N, that happens in Basildon, near London, and that's going to be happening on the last weekend of February, I believe. I think it's a three-day event, or it might be a two-day event, we'll have to see. I'm going to go to that for the full length, stay over, I'll be bringing some of my second-hand games to sell, like Some of the Wars and Small World and Among the Stars and maybe New Dawn, so, you know, get in touch if you want to buy those ahead of time, but certainly I'll be bringing them to the second-hand sale there if they haven't sold already, because I am on Facebook trying to sell them off. As for the podcast podcast is going to continue as it was hopefully the microphone quality is better now from last episode sorry two episodes ago because on episode what are we on now uh 39 so this will be 40 on those episodes i have upgraded my headset so you may have noticed my voice is sounding a little bit more bassy but hopefully a bit more clear the occasional noise in the background it's hard to say is quite sensitive and i'm still trying to get the hang of audacity to sort that problem out But as long as I don't move much, and believe me, I am trying to keep perfectly still, and that is kind of difficult, but I am going to try out this microphone for a while. I think it sounds better, in my personal opinion, than my old Logitech headset. This was a Sennheiser PC363D or something, and I heard some YouTube tests of it, and I thought it sounded really nice, really clear, and should do well for the podcast, at least, of course, until I ever get a chance to upgrade things to the next level, which isn't going to happen until I get a house, see, everything links to the house. So eventually, we'll see how that continues. But 
All in all, things are going well. The new job is going well at Southern Co-op and I'm the new group tax and financial accountant there. Obviously, maybe a couple of them know about my board game thing, but I certainly haven't tried to take any along. What I'm really waiting for is one of my mates from the Dice Portsmouth crew, Ricky Parsons, to hurry up and get back to the office because he works in the same building as me and we can meet up in the cafe for little short games and maybe that will start a trend. I don't know. It'd be quite a good laugh, but it would give me something else to do at lunchtime than just writing blog reviews because, let's face it, my eyes will sting like crazy staring at the PC all day as I'm already staring at the PC for that long anyway. But that's enough for me. So what's happening with this episode? First up, I got first impressions and Letters from Whitechapel and Trains and Stations are the two that are going to feature this time. Then it has been a while. I had my one more game segment a while back with Sentinels in the Multiverse, I believe. I think it was Sentinels in the Multiverse and obviously one more game. I'll take 20 more games of that, please. But this time being a gateway game featured episode, I will be going back to Catan or the Settlers of Catan. Personally, I'm happily call it the Settlers of Catan. I'm not expecting the gaming police to suddenly arrive from Mayfair and like beat me down just because I called it the Settlers of Catan instead of Catan. I really don't get the whole name change thing, but oh well, that's for them to sort out. But I'll be looking back at that to see whether it's still worth playing as a definitive classic or has it grown old with time. And then finally, my top 10 gateway games. Now, I will get on to that in more detail later. For now, let's chug on with the first impressions. So, just two first impressions for you today, guys, and let's start with the weaker of the two this time, and that is Trains and Stations. Designed by Eric Lang, who, to be fair, at this moment is on a bit of a roll, shall we say, with his games. He really is pumping out some quality games, not all of which I love, but certainly they are popular with the masses. You know, he really is getting out there. This has got to be one of his weaker titles, though. Published by WizKids Games, who are better known for the whole Dice Masters and I believe the D&D Attack Queen type series, which some of you might not even heard of the D&D version, but certainly you've probably heard of Dice Masters. In this game, it's a train game, as you would expect, and the idea is, is that you roll dice and either build tracks to various cities, a bit like Ticket to Ride, or you collect commodities to hope to get the Monopoly bonuses at the end of the game. Different symbols will get you the various buildings that you can put on cities which grant you these commodities and rolling trains will allow you to place them on the board and hopefully connect up cities maybe with the help of other players. And the idea is that it's a very simple game that anybody could get into, so almost like gateway level game, so it kind of fits in with the theme of this episode. Unfortunately, there's just not really enough here to engross people. It's a shortish game, about 45 minutes to an hour, plays between 3 and 5, so not too bad on the numbers, but really you don't do a lot here. You just chuck the dice, do some re-rolls, and hope that you get what you need. You can't really form a strategy in this game because the dice dictate how your turn goes. You might just roll nothing but trains. Well, good luck getting those commodities then, but at least you'll get some points laying out tracks. But I seem to find that actually getting the big routes isn't worth it. It's too much hassle, and they're not worth enough points. 
you can just spam some of the two and three length routes with rolling, you know, just a couple of trains, and that tends to work fine. You know, there's no issues with that, and it tends to get you more points in the long run, especially if you combine it with some commodities. Now, there is a bit of a push of luck mechanic involved as well, that if you roll three trains with a padlock simple, you lose some victory points, but that's actually quite damaging. To lose quite a lot of victory points just because you got unlucky on a roll? That's a bit harsh. I mean, at least in Bang the Dice game, when you roll free dynamite, you just lose a life and end your turn, but it's not the end of the world, you still survive. Here, it's kind of damaging to have that happen to you once or twice. I don't know, this one came and went rather quickly. Honestly, I bet most of you haven't even heard of this game. It literally appeared and then disappeared. And I blame that a bit on WizKids, because to be fair, when I look at WizKids games, the only one that I know that they seem to be able to publicise well is Dice Masters. You can't go anywhere without hearing about Dice Masters, because they keep releasing the set so often that I've actually had to quit Dice Masters, and I'm trying to sell my collection at the moment, because there's just too many sets coming out so quickly, and I can't keep up. I thought LCGs were bad, but my god, the speed that these sets are coming out for Dice Masters is ridiculous. But I digress. WizKids didn't really give trains and stations that much of a whole publicity thing, and it just kind of got lost in the ether and the void of games coming out everywhere that this is still ranked only 3,577 on BoardGameGeek. Now, the Dice Tower crew like it, and fair enough, they class it as an underrated game, and I don't mind that. But for me, I just didn't really find enough to engross me here. It was okay to try, and, you know, it's nice to know that some designers can have weak moments. You know, no designer is ever perfect, but I'm not a massive fan of train games as well, so take that with a pinch of salt. Trains and Stations was just a bit of a dud for me. Not bad, but nothing great either. It's very meh, and is quickly forgotten. Now we come on to the favourite of the two. Recently, I was invited to a theme game day round of... Well, I say a friend's house. He's now a friend. But these were two people that go to my Portsmouth on board group, but they're not able to make the Wednesdays. So they very kindly hosted a Sunday event where a few of us were allowed to come round and play several games related to a specific theme. The theme was Crime Wave. So we had things that were deduction, things like solving puzzles, and things like you know, committing a crime and trying to get away with it. And one of the games that I got to play, finally, because I've been wanting to play this for a while, was Letters from Whitechapel. Now, I'd played the Scotland Yard, the easy version, and it was okay. It was a bit simplistic, but it was quite tense being Mr. X, and certainly I think the game is far more enjoyable when you're the bad guy than when the good guy. But that's maybe because deduction is not my favourite theme in the world, and I always like being deceptive. In games, anyway, not in real life. But the you know the whole concept of being the evil guy and trying to be hidden and fool the other players, that's what I really like. So Mr. X was definitely the better idea for me. But Letters from Light Trapple is basically slightly more advanced than Scotland Yard. You play, well, the evil guy plays Jack the Ripper, who is murdering wenches, as they are called in the game. I tried to get them to say ladies for to be polite, but no, they stuck with wenches. And... The idea is is that as you commit a murder, you have to get back to your house. 
Your house is secret. You plot it on the map before the game starts. And then you have various means of travel, like hopping across blocks with a lantern, you know, in the dark, in the back alleys, or getting a carriage to move two spaces, or you just walk. And the idea is is that your route is carried out in secret in your little pad behind your screen. So you map out exactly where on this massive map grid of London where you are. And it's all numbered across the board. The others are playing policemen who move in a slightly slower means to you, but there's more of them. And they're trying to find out where your house is and eventually corner you and accuse you of being in a particular spot. So they might be sitting next to spot 149 and they'll go, are you there? And if you are, you're caught game over but they might also ask have you been to that spot in which case you don't get caught but you have to say yes or no as to whether you've been there and they will piece together the clues of where you've been and where you've gone and try to figure out where your house is and therefore try to box you in you've got four nights to survive and the winner is whether the cops catch jack or whether jack manages to win escape four nights in a row now i found this really enjoyable to play however i have one or two caveats with that I would definitely enjoy this more playing Jack than playing the policeman. Now, the policemen sound fun as well, particularly if you like deduction games. Personally, I like to be on the more deceptive side, so naturally, if I'm playing this game, I am going to have much more fun playing Jack than I am the policeman. And I managed to survive all four nights, mainly because of one classic play which I can't help but feel slightly smug about, where on the third night you murder two people and it's not certain to the policeman which one you've picked. And I managed to fool them all into thinking I was going to be at this one spot. Unfortunately, I went to the other, and that meant I only had to deal with one policeman who I could literally run rings around. I mean, literally run rings around. And the others were far too far away for me to come and catch me before I got to my house. And then come the fourth night, I was able to start so close to my house that it took me two moves to finish. Haha, <laughs> result! It was great fun. But here's the other caveat. This game is long. And I mean really long long. We played this with five players, and I mean me as Jack and four people playing the cops. And granted, three, well, four of us were new players, but I've played Scotland Yard, I know how these games work, so maybe that doesn't really count. But there were certainly three new people on the policeman side, but thankfully, uh, my good friend Hannah was there, who owned the game, to basically show them how it works, and to be fair, she was very good at deducting where I was at times. Hell, I think it was just me versus her. She would have probably caught me relatively easily. But... I digress. The idea, though, is that this game will be long. I don't care what the box says. The box says 120 minutes. Yeah, it's probably 120 minutes if you catch Jack early. But otherwise, this is going to go on for a long time because the Jack has to figure out where he's going to go and that takes time. And the cops debate with each other where they could be and figure out the clues and then try to decide where they're going to go. Trust me, this may say 120 minutes. This will take you at least three hours without fail with five or more players. If it manages to take less time, you've either caught Jack early or people aren't thinking hard enough about where they could be because it just takes that long to think of this sort of stuff especially if you want to make a decent enough effort at it and that's not including the fact that people will roleplay characters and make jokes or make small talk and that extends any game to a great length but it certainly pushes this one past the two hour mark with ease now some people reckon this is better as a two player game and uh, I I can see how that works one player plays Jack one player plays several cops and tries to catch the other player Personally, I think if you're going to go down that route, there's games like Mr. Jack that would probably do just as well and probably have a smaller footprint and setup time. But I can see how it works, and to be fair, despite the fact that I say this game is long, 
It didn't feel frustratingly long. By the time it got to the fourth night, I wanted it to continue. I wanted to see how much longer I could fool the other players into where I was. And it is tense being Jack or Mr. X in these style games because you're there going, don't go that way, don't go that way. Ooh, sneak past. Ooh, you know, it gets so tense, but it's so enjoyable. And you're always thinking and plotting and think, you know, deciding where you're going to go and how you're going to fool them and whether you can take a chance and sneak around the back, that kind of thing. And so are they. So this three hour, four hour length that you may be playing this game doesn't necessarily feel that long and if it does you're enjoying yourself for those three to four hours so i've i've gone on long enough about this game basically i really enjoyed it it's not one that i would want to play very often in the sense that it's a bit long but it was an enjoyable type of long so this is one of those event style games that i would happily play if i had time really it's more of a time issue than anything else but if you get a chance to play this i recommend you give it a try letters from Whitechapel. so keeping with the gateway theme now for this episode i'm bringing back the one more game segment for the podcast this is a part where I talk about a game that I've owned since my early days of gaming and still like to play to this day. However, I have to give an opinion as to whether it still holds the test of time. I did it before with my favourite game ever, Sentinels in the Multiverse, which, to be fair, you kind of knew what the outcome of that was. Here's one that maybe won't be quite as clear off the word go, but we'll see. And sticking with the gateway theme... What better to talk about than the gateway classic Catan or the Settlers of Catan? Haha, <laughs> I said the Settlers of Catan. Yeah, come at me, Mayfair. What are you going to do about it, eh? I really don't get this whole name change thing. But anyway, I digress. Catan is one of the staple Euro classics among board gamers. It is one of the original ones that was brought over from Germany and started the whole revolution with board games in Europe. And yet the premise is so simple. You essentially stay on a little island and build settlements and roads and trade resources amongst the other players to try and further your own development, whether it be in settlements, in roads, or development cards that gave you uh, knights and various other ways of gaining points. And it was just a simple case of get to a certain number of points and that player wins. The main crux of this game, though, was the simple mechanics and the trading. This was one, I don't know if this was one of the first games that brought trading to a, like a mainstream audience, but it's certainly the most memorable one. You were trying to get those four resources and you were trading it constantly, and how many times has the whole, have you, you know, have you got sheep, wood for sheep meme been all over the internet in talking about this game? But I digress again. I seem to have a habit of doing that at the moment. Maybe I should stop drinking this wine here. The idea is is that in Catan, like I said, you're building roads and settlements on a map. The map is modular, but only in what type of terrain is everywhere, so it determines what resources you get. And you roll a dice at the start of your turn, and all the hexes on this map are numbered, so that when you roll the number, you get that particular resource. So there's an element of luck involved, but it also comes down to your ability to trade with the opponents, and your strategy, and where you build. You can't just build anywhere you feel like because some places are better than others. Now, the base game has been out for ages since 1994. 
5, which for me is pretty old. For some, maybe not so much. But it's come out with countless expansions and variations since then. I mean, the main ones that people will know of is probably Seafarers, Cities and Knights, and I think Explorers and Pirates, and Traders and Barbarians. They are the expansions that came out for the main game. Now, they also came out with 5-6 to six player extensions, which I thought was a bit of a money hog trick, really, because it was designed for 3-4 to four players. And then rather than just simply making it 5-6 to six players all the way through you had to pay separately for each 5-6 to six player extension for each expansion you had. Yeah, that's not trying to grab money easily, is it Mayfair? Now come on, that was pretty shady. But to be fair, you can save yourself some money and just not buy the 5-6 to six player extensions because to be fair, this game is better with 3 and 4. Playing this with 5 and 6 is not very enjoyable and I don't recommend anyone does it. 3 or 4 is the way it should be played and it is definitely the best way it should be played. Seafarers I class to be a mandatory expansion for this game. The others I can take or leave because base Catan is still fun. But wool is not as useful as the other resources overall and you're stuck on that one map. Seafarers expands it with these scenarios that allow you to traverse to other islands and get gold or just to settle on other islands. Maybe your island is getting a bit crowded and you want to venture elsewhere. Well, go sail off to this little island and you get everything on it yourself. At least until somebody else tries to sail on and nick it from you. It's got some really cool scenarios and I think Seafarers is definitely a mandatory one to get. The others add some little extensions and modules which uh, I can take or leave. Some are better than others. Fisherman and Catan's a really good one but the rest are kind of like, yeah, they're cool. I'll play with them now and again. Explorers and Pirates took it to a different level where it doesn't feel much like Catan anymore. It feels like two separate games. One where you've got your basic island where you're doing typical Catan stuff and another where you're shipping your vessels off to go get spices and food and stuff and bring it back to the harbour. It's kind of weird. It's still enjoyable, but it's certainly not my pick of the bunch. I personally say that if you've got Catan and Seafarers, you've got enough to last yourself for quite a while. And then if you want a bit more, get Traders and Barbarians. That's got some cool modules in it. And if you want the really, really gamer version of it, then get Cities and Knights, which is enjoyable, but be prepared for a long game of Catan. And I mean a long game. It will be long, you will know it's long, and you may hate it for being that long. But anyway, we're talking about a game that has been out since 1995. Does it hold the test of time? Personally, I still think it does. It remains in my collection to this day with the Seafarers and Traders and Barbarians expansions present. I will play it with any expansion really, but those are my definite favourites. It's the way that it's very simple. Now, there are other simple Euro games as well. There's Carcassonne, for example, which may be slightly easier to teach to someone than Catan. I don't know, you can take that with a pinch of salt, but I personally think Carcassonne's got the edge on Catan for teaching new people, but Catan itself is not that difficult. You've got some resources to trade, you're building roads and settlements, get to this number of points, win. The end. Mini-adventure. That's kind of the way it works. It's a simple premise, but it has a lot of player interaction, and that's what tends to get games going. The fact that you are constantly interacting with other players to try and find out what you can trade with each other and whether you, you know, whether someone's likely to nick your spot on the board, etc. It works for a really involved game. 
it doesn't seem to hit the table as much anymore, and I certainly don't see it being played often, unless you go to a convention, in which case they go for stupid Guinness World of Records-style plays, where they try to get the most games of Catan played, or they try to do endless tournaments. And I have done a Catan tournament once before, and it was kind of weird, really. It was fun, but the fact that you're really trying to win against these players that you're trading with, it's... Kind of a bit weird. I don't know. I don't know if I'd want to do it again. But I digress. It was a cool little experience. But personally, I think Catan's better as a casual game. Does it stand the test of time? Some would argue no. Some people would want to believe that it's been surpassed by other games that take the mechanics that Catan offered and does it in a better way. Now, that may be true. There may be some trading games that are better than Catan. Although I can't think of many off the top of my head. And But I think Catan has a nice charm to it. The fact that it is simple and is a gateway level game, it does deserve the credit it got. And I think it still deserves credit to this day. It is a very neat design. Granted, I don't agree with the way that they sold the various extensions and expansions. And yes, I do think that if it was just Catan base, I'd probably get bored with it after a while. And Seafarers has probably stopped that. But, you know, every game gets a little expansion every now and again, and that's how they survive the test of time. Most games that are really good to this day still need an expansion or two in order to keep them fresh, or certainly hopping off players' shelves. So you can't exactly blame Katana for having a lot of expansions, and to be fair, give the designer credit, if I had made Katana, I'd probably be milking the cash cow myself when it comes to expansions and variations. Some of these variations I haven't even tried. You know, you've got a Germany map, you've got a USA map, you've got all sorts of different ways to play Catan. Even the card game is good fun. The one where you build your settlements in various different types of buildings and put a hero in them and you rotated the cards to see how much resources you got. It was a neat little card game. Unfortunately, it was two-player only and my ex at the time wasn't exactly a fan of board games and she wasn't able to understand the simplicity that that Catan game had so you know it didn't really work out. Okay maybe I'm being a bit harsh to my ex. Simplicity is not the simplest version of Catan it's probably easier to teach normal Catan than it is the card game version but still I didn't think the card game was that difficult but I suppose that's me being biased as a gamer compared to somebody new and well That was just the way it went, so I had to get rid of that one, unfortunately, but I still think the card game is very good. As for the one more game thing, well, Catan still remains on my shelf. It is still a highly enjoyed game of mine. It made my top 75 with ease last year. I can't remember the exact position. I think it fell somewhere in the middle, but... I still think Catan is worthy of the praise it's got, and I think it still holds up to this day as a great gateway game. Whether it's been surpassed by others is irrelevant, in my opinion. It's still worth playing, and it's still worth having in your collection. The fact that they've changed their name to Catan is a bit weird, but it's still the same game at the end of the day. And even if other games have surpassed this, you will know that this one is probably going to be a simpler way of teaching the core aspect of trading to someone. And don't even try to suggest that Monopoly is a simpler game than this to teach trading. Considering most of the people I have played Monopoly with in my childhood days don't even play the rules of Monopoly correctly to allow for the trading to happen. So no, forget Monopoly... This is Catan. Catan is a lot better than Monopoly and certainly worthy of one more play.
It's my favourite point of the episode, the top 10s. I do like my top 10s. And this one I've been looking forward to doing for so long. The gateway games. My top 10 gateway games, in fact. Now, there's a lot of choice in this category, so I've had to make a few caveats. One, I am excluding filler little micro games. So don't expect to see Love Letter here, don't expect to see Jaipur here, don't expect to see Sushi Go here. They are all good games, but you could pretty much pick 90% of those small micro games and they would be fine as typical little gateway games because they're relatively straightforward. But not all of them are ones that I would want to bring out for the first time to show off, hey, this is the board gaming world, check out this. I mean, No Thanks is another example. No Thanks is a great little intro game, and I agree, as a gateway game, it is very, very good. But, would you really pull that out as the first thing for someone new? Hey, look at all this cool stuff I do in my board gaming hobby. Here's a game where you basically just collect sets of numbers. Okay, you know, you're trying to sell yourself as well. And that's what these games are about as well. You know, it's not just simply the fact that I enjoy them a lot, because I do enjoy these more than those filler games I've just mentioned, but it's also one that I enjoy them. So I enjoy teaching them, because I do have to do that on a regular basis. But also that they have something about them that would just sell the board gaming community. Like, there's a visual appeal, or there's a mechanic that's really, like, cool to have, that kind of thing. So there is going to be some, you know, I I bet there'll be some agreement and disagreement in certain aspects with this. But in the end, it's my top ten, so do your own top ten. I know that sounds pretty harsh, but, you know, it's my opinion at the end of the day. So take it with a pinch of salt and see how it goes. And, of course, there will be some honourable mentions, so who knows? Maybe the one that didn't get picked for this list will appear there. Anyway, let's make a start. My top 10 gateway games for the new gamers. My number 10 doesn't seem to appear on a lot of gateway games that I look on other people's podcasts. Now, granted, that's probably because it's not the most popular game around, but it's had a recent reprint. I've managed to get it to the table, and I thought, actually, this would make a good gateway game for the racing genre. There aren't that many racing games in general, and most of the time, whenever someone mentions racing, it's always Formula D or Jamaica. Now, Formula D... Maybe a good gateway game, but to be honest, it's Formula 1. I'm bored with Formula 1. I don't like watching Formula 1 on the TV. The last thing I'm going to do is care whether I'm racing a little car around the track. Just because you get a little gear stick uh, board thing isn't enough to wow me. And then Jamaica is okay, but it doesn't really feel like a racing game. It feels more like a sail-and-shoot-people game, because, to be fair, combat seems to do more in it than actually just moving forward and trying to race people. So, this one is Snow Tales by Fragor Games. Snow Tales is basically a husky dog sled race. And that's pretty much as simple as it gets. Each player controls their dog sled using a variety of cards. There's a card for each of the left and right dog. There is a card for your break. And the idea is is that you play your cards numbered from 1 to 5 and one the term, and the idea is, is that you add up the speed of the dogs and deduct the value of your break. This is your speed. You are on the track that is customizable, and you can use the ones in the back of the book, or you can make your own. There's hazards like trees and chasms and boulders, that kind of thing, and obviously turns. And the idea is, is that if your numbers align correctly, then you go forward at a good speed. 
but if one of them is different from the other, it means that the dogs are pulling different strengths, and therefore you drift. And the cool thing with this game is balancing out when you need to go fast, when you need to slow down for the corners, and how far you're going to drift to avoid other players. It's very simple. I may have made it sound more come again than it actually is, but it's actually a really simple racing game. I love husky dogs. Maybe that's got an influence in it, I don't know. But to be honest, anybody could pick up this game, I think. And I say it's a better racing game than the two I've already mentioned. Snow Tails, give it a shot. My number nine is a classic, an old classic, all the way back from the year 2000. This was one of the first games I got in my collection, and I've expanded it a fair deal since then. But I also bought a revamped version for my parents, and it's gone down pretty well there. This one is the classic tile-laying game, Carcassonne. Now, I'm going to caveat that I am sticking to the base game here. Because I personally prefer to play Carcassonne with expansions, but when you start adding those expansions in, you complicate the game further. Some are easier to grasp than others, but you've got to be careful how many you shove in when they're already trying to grasp the farmers. Base set, though, is still a good fun game, and you can get different versions of Carcassonne as well, like the South Seas and the uh, Gold Rush, I believe is another one, that sort of thing. And for some reason, the Star Wars one. I'm still not sold on that idea, but until I've given it a try, I can't really make an opinion on that. But I would certainly just say the base set of Carcassonne, the new edition with the slightly more cleaner artwork, or one of those ones, South Seas, I think is uh, probably the best spin-off out of all those ones I mentioned. And it's just a really good tile-laying game lay the tiles, put your meeples out. I mean, this was one of the first games that brought the meeples into the modern world. And you have your robbers, your knights, your farmers, and your monks all competing with other players to essentially score points. But the great attraction with this game is, one, it's simple. And that's always a prerequisite for a gateway game that it should be relatively simple. However, there's a good amount of depth in where you should position your tiles. And even then, after all of that, it's one of the games that you see what you create. And it's not necessarily yourself, but you look at the map as it unfolds and you see the the cities and the roads and the fields just expand out and no map ever looks the same from game to game. The added little expansions like the river and the traders and builders, I think it is, and inns and cathedrals, all of them are really good, really solid, and you can expand this game to Lord knows where. There's so many of those mini expansions, it's ridiculous. I dread to think what it's like to play this game with every single expansion included. I would probably do so, just for a laugh, but I don't own them all and probably never will. I have chosen my favourites and tested out one or two others that I wasn't overly keen on. But Carcassonne, still a good staple game. I hope to be teaching it again soon. Now I wonder if anyone expected me to put this one on my top 10. It is a recent game as well, only released at Essen of 2015, but I've played it so much since then, at least double digit times I think by now. And it's my go-to push-your-luck game of all time. Now everybody will mention games like Ink and Gold, which are fine, and there are other ones as well, but this one is easily my favourite, and that is Celestia. Celestia came out at Essen by Blam Games. I'm not sure where the name comes from on that one. And the French artist deserves to be commended because the French art on this 
is just gorgeous. It looks so beautiful. It's essentially a reprint of an old game called Cloud Nine that I saw being played live on the Dice Tower Marathon one time. And as soon as I saw it, I thought, oh, this is quite cool. You've got the push your luck aspect, but you also have the bluffing aspect because as well as... Basically, everybody rolls dice to see whether they can fly this little ship with all the people on it as passengers across to foreign lands in order to get more points. But the problem is is that the dice represent hazards and you have a hand of cards to say whether you can beat those hazards. So there'll be things like pirates, uh, bird strike for some reason. I'm not sure why bird strike's in this, but there might, I suppose it works with planes. And things like fog and lightning storms, that kind of thing. And the idea is that you roll the dice and you have to be able to play the cards that match those symbols in order to pass. But everybody around the table gets a chance to say whether they want to opt in or jump out. And this is where the fun of it really lies. Because if it was just simply say nothing and just decide whether you're in or out, then that would be pretty boring. But in this, the trash talking makes up for it. Every time the pilots are making this, making comments about whether you, you know, yeah, I got this, guys. Yeah, birds, no problem. I'm all good. Come on, stay, stay with me. And then everyone stays in, and then you crash the ship and burn, and burn in flames. And it's just great where everyone's making comments and trash talking to each other in this. It makes for a great pusher luck game. Doesn't take very long to play, about what, 30 minutes or so. Can play up to six players, and everybody knows that five and six are, especially five, you know, is like a dreaded number when it comes to board games. But this plays five and six easily within the 30 minutes, and it looks great. Very simple rules. Great little pusher luck game, Celestia. Number seven is probably the one game on this list where I might get some flack. Now, when I say flack, I mean on the basis of it being a gateway game. I personally think the game is not complicated. You can simplify it by taking out certain aspects, but essentially it's a bluffing game. Everybody knows what bluffing's about. And the rules of it are very simple, and it's visually very appealing, but it's also so much fun to play, and that is Sheriff of Nottingham. This is in the Dice Tower Essentials line, and published by Arcane Wonders. And essentially, it's all about lying to your opponent's face, on a regular basis, or telling the truth. You don't have to lie in this, that's the cool thing with it. What happens is that you're all merchants trying to sneak your goods and contraband past the sheriff. You take it in turns to be the sheriff, and the idea is is that all the merchants will put a certain amount of cards into a little pouch bag and give it to the sheriff. There are certain restrictions as to what you can put in the bag, but essentially you have a choice out of various legal goods, like bread and cheese and chickens, that kind of thing, and you have contraband like pepper and mead and crossbows. It is medieval times after all. And the idea is, is that you tell or you make a claim to the sheriff about what's in your bag. Once everyone's passed their bags over, it then comes down to negotiation and bluffing between the sheriff and all the other players, and bribery is involved in order to go, hmm, hang on a minute, you're lying, you ain't got apples in here. I tell you what, give me five bucks, I'll let it through. Four, no, no, four, I said five. I got kids to feed. And, you know, I mean, the whole kids to feed comment, this is what happens in Sheriff of Nottingham. Everybody you play this with will role play the sheriff and all the merchants like they've never done before. You know, forget D&D campaigns. This is the game you play when you want to role play with comedy involved. Sheriffs could be anything from, you know, fat, lazy, easily bribed sheriffs to FBI stalker agents. You know, I've, I've seen it all being done. And if you want more proof, go watch it play live now i say people may think that this is you know maybe not gateway level but 
There's a very simple market phase. You just put cards in the bag, claim what they are, and then it's all down to your social, you know, social ability and social interaction. That's pretty much it. Now, you can remove certain aspects like the royal goods, which, you know, aren't that difficult to comprehend, but you could remove them to make the game even simpler. So, all you've got to do is just handle the legal goods and the contraband goods. Not that difficult, but I accept that some people might think this is kind of outside the whole gateway game genre. But for me, that's why it's a bit lower on the list, I suppose. The fact that it's pushing the boundaries of whether it's a gateway game. But it's so much fun, and as a bluffing game, it's one of the ones I would go to first if I wanted to teach people how to bluff, essentially. So, Sheriff of Nottingham, number seven. Number six, I finally got to play several times last year, and I am angry with myself that I did not buy the collector's version of this at Essen. Ah, uh, well, never mind. It's been sold in the US. I think it's actually come out today now. It's the 29th of January as I'm recording this part. So, yeah, I think it's come out in the US today, and it will be in the UK at some point soon. But I'm, oh, I really want this game in the collection because it's such a lovely gateway game, and that is Takedo by Antoine Balzer. I swear this guy can do no wrong sometimes. He has made some of my favourite games of all time, including some of what I believe to be the best gateway games of all time. But in this one, you are travellers crossing the East Sea Road, which is basically a really magnificent road in Japan. And while travelling, you move your, your guy, your little miniature, across the board and you will taste fine meals, collect beautiful items, discover great panoramas. Basically, it's mostly set collection. You get cards in different ways and you'll collect sets of food or you'll visit temples and donate some gold or you'll find these panoramic pictures. Uh, essentially, you have like, you know, little almost like, well, you know what a panoramic picture is, but they'll have things like lakes and forests and cloud sky scenes, that sort of thing. And you can collect the sets and try to piece those together. It's really, really simple. Pretty much you just move your traveller to a spot of your choice, providing that you, you know, you can only move it so far. And also, if you are not, if you're in first place, you don't get a go until someone laps you. So if you're at the back then you might be able to get a lot of turns in a row and collect lots of cards because everyone's speeded ahead of you. Of course, the danger of that is is that if they're sitting on the space you want to go, then they've just blocked you. So there's a nice little amount of depth in how you do your actions and how you move across. But the graphic design of this is just so lovable. It's so colourful. It's calm. It's it, it talks about peaceful zen mood when you play it. And I think that is really true. Unless you really don't like this kind of game, you can't really play this game and instantly just feel refreshed. And the collector's edition I want will have upgraded pieces and it will have a soundtrack. Yeah, a CD soundtrack of Japanese Zen music. That's the sort of thing I want to play with this game and another one that I can think of off the top of my head. So, Takedo, great game, number six, soon to be in my collection. Number five is a little bit of a cheat because I've included two games on this number. Now, some of you have probably already guessed which two games these are now if you're really devout gamers, but if you're new, let me explain. There is a designer called Matt Leacock who has made a massive name for himself, particularly with designing cooperative games. Now, I don't like 
well, not necessarily like or love all of his games, but there are two in particular that are all part of the same series that when it comes to teaching new players a co-op game, if it's if I think that they can't handle certain other co-op games that I prefer for fun, these are the first ones I will pull out in a heartbeat. That is Forbidden Island and its cousin, or older brother I suppose is more accurate, Forbidden Desert. Now the reason I've put these two together is because they play out very similarly. Forbidden Island, you're on a grid of tiles and you're trying to capture relics as a team. This is both cooperative games. You're capturing relics and getting off the island before it sinks. In Forbidden Desert, you're stranded in a desert and you're trying to collect pieces of this mystical ship, put it together and then fly away before you get buried by sand. Notice a slight correlation here? Both of them play out very similarly. The difference between the two is that Forbidden Desert is that little bit extra harder. But not by much. It really isn't that difficult to comprehend Forbidden Desert. But if you want the real easy version, especially if you've got kids involved, then start off with Forbidden Island. I have used Forbidden Island when at demo events to teach people co-ops and it's always gone down well. Kids have understood it, they've even managed to master it. And then you say, right, well now you've beaten Forbidden Island, try Forbidden Desert and see how you get on. And then it's a lot harder, but it's still very easy to learn. Both look really good for the price point. You cannot get better value in a budget co-op game than these because the pieces you get are very nice. The tiles are good quality. It's all nice and colourful. And in Forbidden Desert, you get a little ship made out of plastic bits that you put together. And as soon as you put the bits in it, get all to the way to the end and succeed in the game, you pick up the ship and go, you know, you can't help but do it. It's just one of those things. But these are games that cost less than £15 a pop. I, I swear, I think Forbidden Island can actually be sometimes obtained for less than a tenner. It kind of depends where you get it from. But we're talking 10 to 15 quid for these two games. And you'll get a lot of plays out of them, and they look good. How do some other games charge so much for what you get when these guys are able to do it, like Game Right Games, are able to do it for, like, barely a pittance in money? It really doesn't make any sense. Maybe it's the tins, I don't know. That's probably my only problem with them, the fact that they come in tins. Tins aren't the best form of storing a box, but maybe that cut the cost down, who knows? So it's kind of, you've got to take, you know, you've got to take the rough of the smooth, I guess. But for as co-op games, as introduction to co-op games, I can't think of anything more suitable for a gateway game. Though I can think of games that I prefer for fun reasons. We'll get onto that later. But for now, Forbidden Island and Forbidden Desert, great number five. Number four. Oh, you must have known this was going to hit the list. I've just been beaming on about it for a good 10-15 minutes in this podcast. Yes, Catan still makes the top five in my gateway games list. I still really enjoy playing Catan. Granted, I prefer with expansions, but I would still happily play the base game. And to be fair, Seafarer's expansion doesn't really complicate the game that much. You just basically have ships and you have islands. That's about it. Essentially, it still plays like normal Catan, but it looks so much better. So I always say that Seafarers is a must-get expansion if you buy this game, and it will still be suitable for gateway gamers. But the base set of Catan is still really simple to play, and it's a nice introduction to Euro mechanics and trading. This is one of the best Euro games I can think of as a gateway game. You know, we're talking Carcassonne was on the list earlier, and there is another one. We'll get to that in a minute. But Catan is one of the all-time greats. Published all the way back in 1995 and won the Spiel der Jahres. It deserved to. But the only flaw I can think of with this is that it only takes three to four players. A two-player game doesn't really work and if you get the expansions to have it with five and six players, it really doesn't work. Don't get those extensions. 
but three or four players. If you've got that specific number, I can't think of many better gateway Euro games than the Great Catan. Build your roads, build your settlements, roll the dice. I mean, it's, it's a roll dice game. So, you know, not many games can really wow you when a lot of it is based on some degree of luck. But it also depends on where you place your settlements and roads and how effective you are at trading with opponents. And that's the fun that's really held in this game, the trading phase, where you can trade as freely as you like with all the resources that you've got. Enough dodgy memes have been created with this trading phase. I won't go over it here because I'm trying to keep it relatively family friendly, but if you've played Catan, you know exactly which ones I'm referring to. If you've watched The Big Bang Theory, you've also know what I'm referring to. So, Catan number four. Number three. Well, I talked about one of the best Euros when I was saying about uh, Catan. I mentioned Carcassonne already, so which Euro game could I be thinking of that would possibly deserve a top three spot in this? Yeah, it's Ticket to Ride. Yeah, you come on. You knew this was coming. I can't think of a single top ten list for gateway games where someone doesn't put Ticket to Ride on the list. And it deserves to be. This game goes down well with every new player I show it to, and that deserves credit. Now, it's not my favourite gateway game, because after all, there are two better than that, but it just works. The base set is okay, I do prefer to play the expansion maps, and particularly the UK map is brilliant. But the base set, USA, and to a certain degree Europe, are really good ways to introduce people to a Euro game, and all you have to basically learn is set collection. Collect sets of trains, put the trains down on the route. Complete tickets, get points, the end. So easy to teach. And there's so many ways to expand it when they've got a bit used to the game. And even then, you don't necessarily have to go with USA and Europe anymore. It may interest people to know that the Pennsylvania map in the recent expansion, I would actually say that is easier to teach than basic Catan. Because what do you do in it? In Catan, uh, sorry, Catan, Ticket to Ride, I'm getting mixed up here. But in the base set of Ticket to Ride, you've got to teach people the set collection, and you've got to teach people how the points are scored when you lay down certain length tracks. Well, in Pennsylvania, you don't do that scoring part with the tracks. You don't get points with tracks. Instead, you pick up the stock shares, and all they are is essentially another form of set collection. Get the shares, whoever has the most in that particular company gets these amount of points, they're all printed on the cards, happy days. Really simple to teach. I mean, if they could get the first part about set collection, they can't exactly not understand the second part about set collection. And you don't have the fiddly scoring bit when you're laying down tracks. So I would actually give this... I would suggest give this one a try if you really want to teach someone Ticket to Ride in the most basic version you can. But USA, Europe, Nordic countries, whichever base set you go for, they're all really good. Ticket to Ride goes down so well with people I know. I have got several expansions. It will stay in my collection probably forever. It just works. Alan Moon, well done mate. Deserved. Number two is one of my favourite co-op games of all time and it is also one of my top ten games of all time. And technically so is my number one. Well, number one's not a co-op but it's certainly in my top ten. A little clue for you there. But This one is one of my favourite co-op games and definitely the co-op game that I like personally to bring out first 
when I am teaching people about co-ops. Yes, Forbidden Island and Forbidden Desert are probably simpler than this one, but you can play this with slightly advanced rules if you think they could potentially get it, if they're used to that sort of thing, or you could play the family version of this game, which is dirt simple, really easy, and has a great theme on top of it. This is one of Tom Vassell's favorite co-ops. It's one of mine too. It's Flashpoint Fire Rescue. Now, don't, hey, don't scream out there. I know some of you are out there going, oh, come on, this is at number two, come on. No, no, stay with me here. Now, if you think that they would comprehend the like aspect of the fire engine and the ambulance and the various like roles you've got, then great, that's a good start. You can start on that mode. Yes, the setup's a little fiddly, but they don't have to do that. You do the setup, you just teach them the basic rules of action points and we're all working together to put out fires. Nice and easy. But the family version in this game has a pre-built setup board. You don't have the special powers with your characters. You basically just do the action point system and go forth and put out fires. Really nice and easy. You could teach this to kids. And I think more kids get into this because of the whole firefighting theme. You know, you are a team of firefighters putting out fires. I think most kids at some point in their young age wanted to be like a, you know, an ambulance driver or a policeman or a firefighter. And I think firefighter was probably the more popular of the lot. Well, I don't know, maybe policeman might have been pretty good. But, you know, just generally, I think kids get a thing out of the Flashpoint Fire Rescue firefighting theme. But personally, I really love the game as well. With expansions, it's gotten even better. But even the base game, I will happily just whip out one of the original maps and teach it to six people at once. That's the thing. You can teach this to six people. It takes that many players. Again, we're back to this whole thing of five and six player games are not easy to find. And so to have one like this that can be taught really simply and be enjoyed by many ages and many players alike, Flashpoint Fire Rescue deserved number two. Before we get on to the number one, here's a few honourable mentions. King of Tokyo. Now, granted, I haven't enjoyed this as much in recent times, probably because I think I've overplayed it, but it can't be denied that King of Tokyo is one of the easiest and probably one of the more enjoyable dice chucker games around to teach to particularly younger kids. With new gamers, I tend to pull out something else, but with kids, this one goes down so well. It's effectively a Yahtzee dice mechanic, which is used in many games, so it's really good to be able to teach people this. But essentially, you roll dice and take your monster and beat up the other monsters. Great fun, great game, just not well, not worthy enough to be in my top 10 now. Dominion. Now, some people might be shocked that Dominion didn't make the top 10. It's probably my 11 or 12. I still really enjoy Dominion, but again, mostly with expansions. But the base set of Dominion has very simple cards to deal with. Probably not the Intrigue, I don't recommend that as a gateway, but certainly the base set of Dominion is one of the better ways to teach people how to do effective deck building. It's not very complicated, granted there's not much of a theme per se, but it's still a very enjoyable game, one of the original classics, and can be expanded to god knows what levels when they eventually pick up the game's mechanics and get used to the whole deck building thing. And with deck building featuring in so many other games at the moment, you need to have a base set to start with. So, Dominion, nice honourable mention. Survive Escape from Atlantis. 
This is the reprinted version of Escape from Atlantis that I used to play when I was a kid, so I've got a bit of a nostalgic connection to this. But Survive Escape from Atlantis is a very easy game to pick up. You're effectively just trying to get your people off this island onto the nearby shores while dodging lots of cool sea monsters. At some point, you're going to have to learn in board games that there is a point where you will play a game where people can be really nasty to you. This is probably the best one to teach them how to do it at a gateway level. Great fun. Survive Escape from Atlantis. My number one is almost like the cousin to Takedo. Antoine Bozer does it again by producing such a nice, light-hearted, calming game that's competitive. It doesn't have to be a cooperative to be a gateway game, but it's just so nice and charming that you can't help but love it. And it's Takinoko. I got to play this last year, finally, after waiting for so long. And since then, I have been playing it and playing it and playing it and teaching it to everybody I know, who most of which have gone out and bought it subsequently after. Takinoko is a great little competitive game where you are moving a little gardener miniature around this bamboo garden full of tiles and growing bamboo trees, nice little wooden colourful bamboo trees. Of course you also have a panda that you're moving around who eats the bamboo off the trees. You're going out to complete objectives, whether it's grow trees of certain sizes on certain tiles, uh, get the panda to eat certain types of bamboo, or lay out the garden in a particular way. All you have to do on your turn is roll a dice for the weather, resolve, do two actions, resolve in any order, End of turn, move on. Really simple mechanics. With the expansion, Chibis, it's even more fantastic. I love it more with that. And to be fair, I have taught this game with the expansion, and it's still being got by most players. So don't think that Chibis has to be left out. However, I can understand that maybe you want to keep it as simple as possible, in which case just leave it out, play one game of Takinoko, and then throw it in. That's, that's a good way of going about it, but I think if you enjoy Takinoka that much, you really ought to get Chibis. Check out my review on that. There's one on, I think there was one on the blog around autumn time, I think September, October time when I reviewed it, so give it a shot. But back to Takinoko. It's just such a charming little game. I can't help but make noises when I move that panda. I, I, I like bears. I can't help it. I just think the panda is such a cute little model. It, the gardener is a cool little model. It's just so colourful. The pieces are lovely. It's just... It is the ultimate Zen charming game, and I know I mentioned Takedo earlier, but I don't know. Takinogo just seems to go down well with people. There's it's light-hearted competitiveness. You might screw a player out of a particular tree, but nobody's like shouting at each other. Nobody's bored. Everybody's thinking, "Oh, what can I do?" And they're making little noises when they move the garden, and you can't help but go om nom nom every time that fat little panda eats some bamboo. It's just too cute. Love this game. It's in my top 10 and will probably stay there till next time. Who knows? But, you know, Chibis has certainly given it a chance to stay in my top 10. But I love it. I've got the deluxe set. And tomorrow, when, well, on the 30th of January, when I go to Dice Portsmouth New Event Day, I will be taking my deluxe version with me, the giant version of Takinoko to show people. And it always goes down well. I love this game. So do a lot of people that I've shown it to. Maybe it's not your type of thing, I don't know, but I strongly recommend that if you are grabbing a gateway game and you want something that's charming, colourful, and fairly light-hearted, but not necessarily a co-op game, this is a perfect one to get. Number one, Takinoko. Woo! 
And my top 10 gateway games are finally done. Now, you're probably wondering why certain ones didn't make the list. Well, let me just clear up things here. Small World did not make the list because even though the mechanic of it is simple, the whole you just move your tiles and take over someone else's with deterministic combat, I don't think that the race combinations make it a gateway game. Makes it a fairly easy game, but I always think of this as a step up. I never think of that as a gateway game because you've got to look at those combinations and figure out how they're going to work. And every time you see the combinations out there, you have to go look it up on that reference sheet because it's not always intuitive as to what the symbols mean. And as soon as you have to do that so often, it kills the ability for it to be a gateway game. I still like it, although I have sold my copy. Yes, I know, but you know, I, was, I wasn't really getting it to the table that much. And that reference sheet problem is one of the reasons. It's a great game, but I just... Trying to teach people that reference sheet, constantly having to look and see what things are. Every time something comes out and you've got five or six choices there, it just wasn't really working. And what else is that? Oh yeah, Seven Wonders, yeah. I have seen this appear on people's gateway game lists. Why? Okay, seriously, why? Now, granted, it is one of the simpler gateway games, sorry, one of the simpler drafting games. But that does not make it simple gateway level. Oh god, no. I mean, yeah, you drafting is relatively simple, but I, if I'm going to teach people drafting, I'll give them Sushi Go. Now, I know it's not... I much prefer Seven Wonders to Sushi Go in terms of fun, but at least Sushi Go will teach them the art of drafting and trying to figure out what cards they need and how to deny opponents stuff. But with Seven Wonders, you've got to teach them several different types of cards. You've got the guilds at the end. You've got the boards in front of you building the wonders. You've got... They've then got to learn how to figure out whether they got to deny people cards that kind of thing and on top of that you've got all the iconography now the iconography i find easier to deal with because i'm very much one of those people who learns with icons rather than words i know it's kind of weird i'm just pictorial representations do more to teach me a game than loads of text on a card but iconography for a lot of people doesn't work the same way People will try to learn Seven Wonders and it will confuse them to high heaven for the first few games, trying to learn all that iconography. They'll constantly be asking questions as to whether this means that, this means that, because it's not always easy to tell what the icons mean. And again, it's all back to this whole looking at a reference sheet thing constantly. So Seven Wonders, I do think, is a great game and I think it's a step up from Sushi Go. But as a gateway game, no, 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 no. Can't think of many others. I mean, there was loads of them on the list. I mean, where's my list? Uh, yeah, here we go. So, what else was there? Bang the Dice Game. Uh, there was the Sushi Go Love Letter No Thanks lot, which, again, I caveated that I wasn't going to do micro games. Uh, there was Shadows of a Camelot. Mm, does throw people off a little bit on the first game, but, you know, it's still good. I think it would probably be a top 15 choice. Uh, Star Realms might have fallen into that micro game thing, but, you know, uh, it's okay, but... It's not one of my favourites. Hanabi, again, I thought that was in the sort of micro game category, but it was worth it was worth considering because I do think that makes a good gateway game. Jaipur, again, we're talking the micro game thing, and I know some of you might shoot me down thinking, well, come on, if it's a micro game, but again, even if I included micro games, I don't think this list would have changed much because even if they made easier gateway games, they weren't as fun for me to play and teach and this is what part of this list is it's not just the top 10 gateway games that you should get just because they're easy these are the top 10 gateway level games that i think you should get because they are a combination of being relatively easy but also being immense fun and that's just the way i did it so you know take it with a pinch of salt 
People are probably also wondering, where's Pandemic? Where's Pandemic? Come on, where's Pandemic? Everybody's gone so Pandemic mad these days, and I've yet to get Pandemic Legacy to the table. I've got a copy of it, and it will get played. I will attack that hype train head-on and find out what is going on with this. But I was never a huge fan of the original Pandemic. I like it. It's okay. But it's fairly abstracted for the theme. I mean, I don't feel like I'm curing diseases when I play that game. I just feel like I'm moving my pawn around the map and removing cubes and collecting sets of cards. You know, Ticket to Ride's theme is fairly light. You know, you're just collecting sets of cards and playing out little trains. Well, Pandemic's a similar story. But with Pandemic, I don't know. It's just, It suffers a lot from the alpha gamer problem. And I'm not saying that I never am the alpha gamer. I've probably been guilty of it once or twice in my life. I bet every one of us has who's taught a co-op game. But this one really lends itself to the alpha gamer. And then on top of that, the whole abstracted theme and the fact that the expansions being good, I do prefer it. And in fact, I would really only want to play this game if it had in the lab with the cool little lab board. But as soon as you start adding all that stuff in, it complicates the game way beyond the gateway game level. So, you know, I understand if people want to put Pandemic on their top 10 gateway game list. I totally understand. I'm totally on board with that. It's just not one of my favourite co-ops out there. I much preferred Flashpoint Fire Rescue, for example. And was there another co-op on this list? Uh, Oh yes, the Forbidden Island and Forbidden Desert. Yeah, I would sooner pull out those three games before Pandemic easily to teach someone a co-op. So, and probably even Shadows of a Camelot, to be honest. I just enjoy those ones more. That's just my personal opinion. I know Pandemic's like the greatest thing since sliced bread for a lot of gamers, and that's cool. I hope you enjoy it. But for me, it's not going to make my list. And to be fair, maybe it should please some people that there is actually one top 10 gateway game list out there that doesn't have Pandemic on the list. Because let's face it, we're in Pandemic fever right now. Anyway, I digress. I'm, I'm not ragging the game. I don't think it's a bad game. I think it's a cool game. Just not one of my favourites. So, you know, take that with a pinch of salt. Anyway, that's enough for me. I've got to get on with editing this thing. Not to mention I've also got to plan ahead for tomorrow's Dice Portsmouth event over in the historic dockyard in Portsmouth. Yes, they've got another one of their events going. And I'm going to be there teaching games. So I'll bring my deluxe Takinoko on. I suspect Dice City will get played. I'm going to take Flashpoint Fire Rescue, Forbidden Desert. Maybe Carcassonne or Catan, depends. I don't really need to take ticket to ride because pretty much everybody else would have brought ticket to ride with them and probably might leave dominion at home but i might bring snow tails that'd be something different and takaido i would bring if i had a copy of the game come on collector's edition come to the uk i want it now so that's going to be a good laugh in terms of everything else well you know i'll see how things go with the whole searching for a home front because unfortunately a home that i really liked Uh, I might have mentioned at the start of the podcast. Bear in mind, I do record these in bits. And unfortunately, somebody nicked the house from me. So I'm still on the house search, although I had better find one soon because I have a Geekazon table deposit paid with building a bespoke table and it will not fit in my flat. So I need to find a house fast. You can see the stress that's putting me on, on top of everything else. However, a couple of other things that you might be interested in. I am going to audition for appearing on the Dice Tower as a segment in their podcast. Now, Tom Vassell recently put out a bulletin about getting people to send in their four-minute segments and to see how they go. Now, I don't know if I'll get on the show, because obviously there's a lot of people doing it, and you've got to really stand out, I think, in order to be accepted. But I'm going to try a four-minute segment where I talk about gateway games again, because I do like these gateway games. They're good fun. I enjoy playing them, and I like teaching new people the hobby. 
If if people can come into the hobby from outside, I love it. I co-run a club in Portsmouth, and when new people turn up, I think it's great because then I can get out these gateway games and show them and just watch the smile on their face as they start enjoying it. Granted, it doesn't always go down as well as that, but the majority of the time it does, and if they didn't like the first game, then, well, maybe there's something else in the collection. Because there's all sorts of different games, there's always something for someone. And that's what this segment's going to focus on. I am going to pick, each time I do the segment, a different mechanic in a game. So it'll be set collection, I think I'll start with first, but then I'll do things like drafting and area control and auctions and role selection, that kind of thing. And I am going to give some examples of recommended gateway games for that mechanic. And I will include everything. I'll include micro games, I'll include big games, I'll include budget games. I'll certainly always include a budget game if there exists, because I know most people new to the hobby want to game on a budget to begin with before they start splashing out all the money. So I will recommend some light, some, well they're all going to be light because after it was a gateway game, but I'll recommend some micro games and I'll recommend definitely, if I can, a budget game as well. Whether this segment will take off, I don't know. After all, they've got to accept it and put it on the podcast. However, if they don't put it on the podcast, maybe I'll integrate it into the Broken Meeple one. It sounds like it's a useful segment that could probably maybe take the place of the discussion segment because I must admit, the discussion segment is getting a little bit redundant because, listen to me now, I'm discussing stuff during the podcast outside of the discussion segment. So I much prefer doing the whole one more time thing And I reckon something like this would be a little bit more useful. But we'll see. I'm digressing. Maybe it will get on the Dice Tower podcast and you'll hear me rabbiting on about gateway games then. After all, four minutes is difficult and I've already ranted and raved about this whole thing for probably more than four minutes now on this podcast. So yeah, I'm not doing very well with time management. doesn't suit me well as a tax accountant. Oh well, but that's one thing. The other thing is that I put out a message earlier on Facebook and Twitter about what I thought was a unique idea until I was somewhat shut down for that, which was the whole thing of, I do written reviews, and most people do video reviews. But I was wondering if anyone did audio-only reviews. No, not referencing a YouTube vid, pure audio reviews on a podcast. Of course, stupid me should actually think before he comes up with a question like this, because, of course, we've got people like the, uh, I think it's the Longview podcast, I think there's the... uh, um, not no more players podcast I, I forget sorry if i've forgotten i'm literally doing this off the top of my head but there's very and secret cabal there's various podcasts out there that do little micro game reviews although the cabal is an exception they do like one hour long reviews of games you know they really go on about their games after all there's four or five of them talking about it so what do you expect but i was wondering if i should convert some of my reviews to audio because writing a review takes longer than you think Because it's not like I can just belt it out in 30 minutes. I've got to think about what I write. I've got to make sure it's relevant. I've then got to proofread it to make certain it makes sense. It's spelt correctly and it's actually addressing all the points, good and bad, I need to know about a game. Then I need to upload it. Then I need to get the pictures, whether it's pictures from my camera or ones that I've gotten permission for on BoardGameGeek. You know, there's a lot of work that goes into these things. And it used to be easier when, in my previous job, because I hated it so much, I was able to, you know, naughty me, doss around a bit and write some reviews at work. Well, this new job is a lot more interesting and certainly a lot more hard-driven. You know, I've got a lot of work to do in this job now, especially now that I'm out of the handover period and my predecessor has left, and I've got a giant audit to do. I work for the Southern Co-op, so it's quite a big company, you must admit. If you live in the UK, you'll recognize it. But, yeah, I've got a lot of work to do at work, funny enough. 
So writing reviews there is not likely going to happen. And then that means I've got to find time outside of work to write them. And that's difficult at the moment because I'm trying to play review copies of games that I'm getting now in from several sources. I'm trying to play the games I enjoy. And I'm also trying to have a life outside of games. You know, games aren't all that I do. I love all the stuff that everybody else does, like cinema, country walks, holidays, and theatre, and just going out for meals, cooking for mates, you know, that sort of thing. I do all sorts. And, oh, yeah, going to the gym. But... This is my thing. Could I start doing little 10-minute mini-sodes on my podcast or alongside the podcast? So kind of like a, a secondary podcast. It would still be called the Broken Meeple, but there would be the usual one-a-month Broken Meeple podcast with the first impressions and the hellos and the top 10s and all that. I'm not going to stop that. That's going to continue. But alongside that, I'm wondering that instead of doing some written reviews, I would do some 10-minute audio reviews. And I wouldn't even cover the rules. I would describe how the game plays in the sense of, let's say, for example, Takinoko. You are building a bamboo garden with the help of a gardener who grows lots of colourful trees, but there's a panda there who eats all your bamboo, and you are trying to complete objectives for points and something like that, you know, that was a kind of rushed, but, you know, giving you an idea of what the game is about, as opposed to going over rules, to be fair, would you listen to rules on audio only? Surely that would be boring as anything to listen to rules. I mean, I zone out when I listen to rules on audio. To be fair, I zone out when I listen to rules on video sometimes, because, I mean, some people do it better than others, but the problem is with rules... It's difficult to sort of just listen to the rules with no visual aid and stuff like that. And to be fair, most people can find out the rules by other means. We've got Board Game Geek, for instance. They usually have a PDF rulebook on there. Failing that, the publisher's website usually has one. So how hard could it be to find it? So what I'm thinking is 10-minute little mini-sodes where I just talk about the game briefly and then go over the good and bad points and give my verdict. And those would replace some of, not all, of the written reviews. I think the ones that I get review copies of, I'm going to still need to do written reviews for because, after all, I need to do them on behalf of certain distributors, so they need to see the visual aid. But for a lot of games in my collection that haven't managed to get a review, I reckon there's room to do these 10-minute minisodes. So I'm looking into this, and maybe some will come out in February if I manage to get round to it or if it decides, oh, yeah, it's popular. I've had a lot of help from people on Twitter and Facebook with suggestions, so, you know, thank you for that. But we're going to see how that goes. Maybe this will give me time because I reckon I could whip out a 10-minute episode and edit it and upload it quicker than I could do a written review. And if that is the case, then happy days because I don't script these. None of this podcast is scripted. I know what sections I'm doing and that is it. I use BoardGameGeek as a reference just to make certain I don't screw up people's names. But other than that, it's just all me talking. Surely I can do that for 10 minutes and edit it quicker then I can do a full-length written review. We'll see how that goes. Anyway, I've been going on for too long. This podcast is going to be too long at this rate if I don't shut up. So I'm going to leave you there for now. Thank you for listening to this podcast. Take care. Enjoy what little there is of January left. God, where is 2016 going already? I hope this Top 10 Gateway Games list was useful to you. I've been wanting to do it for so long. I love the genre. It's a great list to refer to. Next time... Who knows? I haven't even thought of next month's top 10 list. I'm thinking maybe a specific publisher or maybe designers. That would be something different. I've never really done that. Anyway, that's for another time. So take care. Enjoy gaming. Enjoy the rest of January, what little there is of it. And I hope to game with you soon. Good night. 
I appreciate you taking the time to listen to my podcast. Thank you for your continued support. If you wish to find out more, you can check out the website at www.brokenmeeple.blogspot.co.uk. Alternatively, you can chat to me on Twitter at The Broken Meeple or search for my Facebook page under, of course, The Broken Meeple. This podcast is dedicated to the gamers like you who play the games I love. So take care, have fun and enjoy the hobby.